Beloved, none of us lives to himself or herself, and none of us dies to himself or herself. No, we are the Lord's servants. We have been summoned out of the darkness of our sin and into his marvelous light so that we can live for him. So if we live, we live to the Lord, and if we die, we die to the Lord. We belong to him. And if we are going to live lives that are pleasing to Him, we must submit ourselves to the wisdom of His Word. So, please turn with me now in your copy of the Scriptures to 1 Corinthians chapter 4. 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 14 to 21. Listen carefully now to the Word of God. I do not write these things to make you ashamed, but to admonish you as my beloved children. For though you have countless guides in Christ, you do not have many fathers. For I became your father in Christ Jesus through the gospel. I urge you then, be imitators of me. That is why I sent you Timothy, my beloved and faithful child in the Lord, to remind you of my ways in Christ as I teach them everywhere in every church. Some are arrogant, as though I were not coming to you, but I will come to you soon if the Lord wills, and I will find out not the talk of these arrogant people, but their power. For the kingdom of God does not consist in talk, but in power. What do you wish? Shall I come to you with a rod or with love in a spirit of gentleness? Let's ask the Lord for his help as we look to his word. Let's pray. <clears throat> Father, I pray that you would now manifest your power as we hear your word. Open our eyes to see where we have given in to cultural thinking, where we have given in to the wisdom of the world so that we might put those controlling, enslaving patterns of thinking and behavior to death. Teach us instead to put on the mind of Christ and to love the way of the cross. Lord, we ask that your Spirit would create a new culture in this congregation, not an impotent culture that is conformed to a country or a state, but a culture where your Spirit's power is manifest in our lives, a culture where we submit ourselves to our crucified and risen King. In his glorious name we pray, amen. If I could summarize in a poem what Paul taught of the Corinthians, I would choose one that is called, Hast Thou No Scar? Hast Thou No Scar? It's an old English way of saying, Have You No Scar? This poem was written by Amy Carmichael, an Irish missionary who worked among women and children in the state of Tamil Nadu, India, during the early 1900s. Now, the words of this poem are meant to capture Jesus' thoughts about the lives of his modern-day disciples. In other words, if Jesus could evaluate your life, this is what he would say. Hast thou no scar? No hidden scar on foot or side or hand? I hear thee sung as mighty in the land. People talk a lot about you. I hear them hail thy bright ascendant star. You seem to be famous, well-known, powerful, respected, up and coming. Hast thou no scar? Hast thou no wound? Yet I was wounded by the archers, spent, leaned me against a tree to die and rent. 
By ravening beasts that compassed me, I swooned. Hast thou no wound? No wound? No scar? Yet as the master shall the servant be, and pierced are the feet that follow me. But thine are whole. Can he have followed far? who has no wound or scar. In other words, the life of a disciple is marked by trials in this world. His life or her life is patterned after the wisdom and the way of the cross. If you're not experiencing trials for the sake of the gospel and for the sake of obedience to the word of Christ, then are you really following Christ? Can he have followed far, who has no wound, no scar? Are you truly a disciple of Jesus? Is your life modeled after the wisdom of the cross? Friends, the Holy Spirit tells us in this letter that the wisdom of the cross is foolishness in the eyes of the world. God's wisdom is always opposed to the wisdom of the world. In fact, God has judged the wisdom of the world and He has determined and decreed that it will come to nothing. And so your Christian life cannot and should not be marked and known by the values and beliefs and patterns of thinking that your culture finds attractive, that your culture finds impressive or significant. If you embrace the way of Christ in this age, you will be regarded as a fool. But if you embrace God's way, you are wise, says Paul. If you embrace the world's way of thinking as manifest in your culture, then you are trusting the very thing that God judged on the cross. And this is why Paul is deeply distressed when he hears that the Corinthians were using cultural criteria to evaluate some of their leaders. They were not only assessing their leaders based on their speaking abilities and their reputation and their influence, but they were also forming factions in the church. And they were proud of themselves. They were proud of their assessments. Instead of looking to the Word and assessing their leaders rightly, Instead of viewing them through the lens of the cross, they were behaving like immature children. The word of the cross would have and should have reminded them of God's grace, that their leaders and their abilities were all gifts of God's grace to them. But instead of thinking like Christians, like people who have the Spirit, they were looking to their culture for wisdom all the things that their culture appreciated and admired. That's where they went to. And they were behaving as though they were wise, as though they had arrived, because now they had the kind of leaders that Corinth admired. And so in verses 8 to 13 of chapter 4, Paul rebukes them for their worldliness. He says, don't you know that Christians are to be foolish in the eyes of the world? That the way of the cross is the way of suffering and persecution? If you were judging your leaders according to the wisdom of God, then you would realize that Christian leaders are not kings. They're servants. They're not stars, but stewards. Paul points out with irony and biting sarcasm that if their judgments about their leaders were right, then not even Paul and the apostles of Christ could measure up. No, these Corinthians needed to be reminded of the gospel. They needed to be reminded of the message of Christ and Him crucified. They needed to be reminded that in this age, they were called to suffer for the sake of Christ. Friends, in this age, as we wait for the return of Christ, we will be treated as scum. We will be treated as scum by a world that rejected Christ. And yet, something amazing will happen. God's power 
will be put on display in our weakness as we trust in His wisdom, as we trust in His gospel and endure faithfully. And so Paul sees the Corinthians as children who have been led astray by the deceptive voices of their culture. And so he ministers to them as a father. And as he does that, he he teaches us what a Christian leader ought to be like. Christian leaders are called to be fools for Christ. They are called to be content with weaknesses and insults. They are called to be servants and stewards of the word of Christ, but they're also called to be spiritual fathers. And so in this text, we'll get to see what spiritual fathering looks like and why it is necessary for our growth as disciples of Christ. And it involves three things. Number one, Spiritual fathering involves confronting and warning others. Confronting and warning. Number two, it involves putting your life on display for others to imitate. You put your lives on display for others to imitate. And number three, it involves calling attention to cross centered sanctification and discipline. Spiritual fathering also involves calling people's attention to cross-centered sanctification and discipline. Notice what Paul says after that stinging rebuke in verses 8 to 13. Look at verse 14. I do not write these things to make you ashamed, but to admonish you as my beloved children. Now, when you read his indictment in verses 8 to 13, where he says, already you have all you want. Without us, you have become kings. We are weak, but you are strong. You think you've arrived by your standards, which you have so conveniently adopted from Corinth. You look really good. You have it all. But when you take those same standards and you apply it to us, we look like fools. The apostles look like scum. What's wrong with this picture? I'll tell you what's wrong, says Paul. You're trusting in the wrong standards. And to top it off, you're proud. Now, when you read that, you might think, wow, he's really letting them have it, isn't he? He wants to put them down. He wants to demean them. Whatever self-esteem they might have, he wants to tear it to shreds. That's his motive. He wants to shame them, and he's getting a kick out of it. But that's not what Paul is doing. While their behavior is shameful, if you remember, there was jealousy and pride and strife, There was shameful behavior. But think about Paul, the man himself. Paul's not the kind of person who will hesitate to point out when someone's behavior is shameful. So in the very next chapter, in chapter chapter 6, verse 5, two chapters ahead, and even in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, he says this, I say this to your shame. So, He's not afraid to point out shameful behavior. But friends, this is not about them. This is about him. It's about his motives. It seems like there were some people in Corinth who were questioning his motives. Look at the text. He says, I do not write these things to make you ashamed, but to admonish you as my beloved children. Paul says, I want you to know that I'm instructing you. I am confronting you. I am warning you. That's what it means to admonish. I'm doing this not to put you down, but to warn you because I love you. You are my beloved children. See, this is how Paul saw the members of the church at Corinth. He saw them as his beloved children. They were blood-bought saints. The testimony of Jesus was confirmed among them. They might have been behaving in an infantile, sinful way, but he hasn't given up on them. He loves them. 
Many of these people had come to faith through his preaching when he founded the church. And so he saw himself as their spiritual father. Look at verse 15. For though you have countless guides in Christ, you do not have many fathers. For I became your father in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Now the word that is translated as countless guides is a word that means myriads or tens of thousands of guardians. Paul is obviously using hyperbole here. You know, in those days, a guardian was a hired employee, often a slave who would supervise and protect a young child. He would not just be a babysitter, but would teach the child morals and manners. And most often, these guardians were known to be strict and uncaring. And Paul says, I know that you have countless guides in Christ. You have plenty of teachers like that at your church. And what he's referring to is a group of leaders within the church who were not only flaunting their speaking abilities and, and acting divisively, but these men had a low view of Paul. After all, he wasn't as impressive as they were. And you can get a better picture, a better sense of who these men were when you read 2 Corinthians. And so Paul says, you may have many of these people to guide you, but they are not what I am, your spiritual father in Christ Jesus through the gospel. I genuinely care for you, says Paul. I was willing to suffer to bring the gospel to you so that you might believe in Christ. I love you. That's why I'm warning you. See, Paul doesn't want to destroy them. He wants them to change because he loves them. Remember, this is the man who wrote in Ephesians 6 verse 4, Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Pastors, I want to speak to you. You should know that loving leaders instruct and warn their sheep. If you're an elder at this church, this is what you should know. And just as parents have to constantly instruct and warn their children at various stages of their lives, so too pastors must instruct and warn their sheep. This is what it means to love and care for Jesus' sheep. Love does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but it rejoices with the truth. So confront instruct, warn, and then repeat when necessary. See, when Paul came to Corinth, he was determined to know nothing among them except Christ and Him crucified. He had taught them what to believe, but that did not seem to translate into right behavior. You know, we see this with many churches, don't we? Even in our own congregation. People profess to believe the gospel and they can even tell you what the message of the cross is, but they don't live according to the gospel. They adopt the ways of their culture and eventually blend into their culture, becoming indistinguishable from the world. And friends, here's what you need to understand. This is what I mean when I say they blend into culture and become indistinguishable, indistinguishable from the world. Here's what I want you to understand. I'm not talking about Christians doing drugs or becoming alcoholics or going to strip clubs or committing murder. I'm not talk talking about becoming worldly in that sense. No, I'm talking about the sense in which these Corinthians were absorbing cultural values to assess their leaders. I'm talking about embracing things that your culture finds respectable, things that you think is normal simply because you are from that people group. So, if it's normal in your culture to listen to what your parents tell you to do, even if, listen carefully, even if, even if Scripture tells you otherwise, 
So if this is you, this is the culture you're from, you listen to your parents, even if the Bible says one thing and your parents say another thing, you go with your parents, then that's cultural thinking. You're doing what these Corinthians were doing. You might gain the respect of your society and family members for honoring your parents, but that is not the way of the cross. Both you and your parents are being arrogant, and you are sinning because you're rejecting God's wisdom. If you're someone in this congregation who is hiding their sin, and the reason you don't want to seek help from other members or your pastors is because you feel you would die of shame if people find out what you did, you're thinking culturally and not Christianly. If your cultural virtue is to save face above everything else, you're being arrogant. Because you know what is, do you know what is infinitely more important than your face? God's face. His honor. His wisdom. His word. And he tells you that because Jesus died in your place to wash away all your sins and purchase you for himself, you can now go to your heavenly father. You can ask him for forgiveness. You can confess your sins to him. And you can ask help from your brothers and sisters to help you fight your sin because that too is your heavenly father's wise design. Think Christianly and not culturally. If it is normal and acceptable in your culture to make fun of others, to be rude or to gossip about others in a, in a group because it makes you popular and earns you the adoration of the group, you're thinking and behaving culturally. Because God's wisdom in His Word tells you, Ephesians 4.29, let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up as fits the occasion, so that it may give grace to those who hear. God's wisdom in Ephesians 5.4 says, let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place, but instead let there be thanksgiving. If you're the kind of person who is enamored by the praise of men and wants to fit in to a social situation, instead of putting on the mind of Christ, then you're thinking culturally and not Christianly. Brothers and sisters, be willing to be socially awkward and be willing to be regarded as a cultural outcast for the glory of Christ. That's the way of the cross. The way of the cross is to obey God's word no matter what and be willing to suffer the scorn and shame and the displeasure of your culture. It is to be considered a fool in the eyes of all for the sake of trusting and obeying the word of Christ. And that might lead to your own family members despising you and rejecting you, but that's okay. Because you're trusting in the cross and you're obeying the word of Christ. And when you do that, His Spirit will enable you to bless when you are reviled and to endure when you are persecuted. See, Paul admonishes the Corinthians because they had bought into what was impressive in the eyes of their culture and they were neglecting God's wisdom that tells us that leaders are to be suffering servants. Paul admonishes them as a father out of love for them as one who does not want to see his children go astray. And in doing this, Paul shows us what a Christian leader ought to be like. Pastors of churches ought to devote themselves to the Word and to the way of the cross and to have the heart of a loving father. To have the heart 
of a loving father. Friends, what sort of pastor would you rather have? Would you rather have a consultant? One who regularly gives you good advice, good tips on how to live a better life? Or one who is like a loving father? Do you want one who lives for your approval and never says anything to upset you? Or do you want one who loves you enough to warn you and to correct you and to remind you of the gospel of our Savior? A pastor who understands the word of the cross and has been changed by the love of God as displayed on the cross loves like this. Loves like this. But it's hard, isn't it? The way of the cross is not easy. It is the narrow way. But brothers and sisters, we are not called to walk that way alone. We are called to be saints together. 1 Corinthians 1-2. But friends, it is not enough to be warned when we go astray. It's not enough to be told to think rightly. It's not even enough to be told how to think rightly. We need to be shown what it's like to live the way of the cross. We need models to emulate. And that brings us to our second point. Spiritual fathering involves modeling the way of the cross so that others can imitate us. Look at verse 16. I urge you then, be imitators of me. Now, it was obvious that the Corinthians had the wrong role models. And so Paul, as their spiritual father, calls them to imitate him. Again, this is not about Paul. It's about imitating Christ himself. We know this because in 1 Corinthians 11 verse 1, Paul writes, Be imitators of me as I am of Christ. Children imitate their parents. We all know that. I remember when I first heard the phrase, like father, like son, I really didn't understand what that meant until I caught myself doing certain things in a way that my father did. And this is what Paul wants the Corinthians to do. Beloved, some of the most important lessons are caught rather than taught. This does not mean that teaching is unimportant. No, it means that you have only been taught well and taught completely when you have seen it modeled. This is a fundamental and essential aspect of discipling. A shepherd goes before his sheep. He leads by example. And we see this all over the New Testament. If we claim to trust in the message of the cross, we ought to imitate Christ himself. Listen to these passages. Ephesians 5, 1-2. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children. And walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us. 1 Peter 2.21 For to this you have been called. He means called to suffer. Because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example. So that you might follow in his steps. 1 John 2.6 Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. Secondly, you should know that godly imitation is an essential part of discipling and being discipled. It's integral to our holiness and endurance. And so hear what Scripture says about this. 1 Peter 5, 2-3, Shepherd the flock of God that is among you, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. 2 Timothy 3, 10-11, you, however, says Paul to Timothy, have followed my teaching, my conduct, my aim in life. Think about that. Godly priorities can be learned by watching how someone else prioritizes things. You followed my aim in life, my faith, my patience, my love, my steadfastness, my persecutions and sufferings. Philippians 4 verse 9, 
what you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things. Or Hebrews 13, verses 7 to 8, remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the word of God, consider the outcome of their way of light and imitate their faith. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. In other words, the word of Christ and the way of Christ does not change. And so it can be taught and imitated. It can be passed on from one generation to the other. No, we don't need a new discipling model for today in 2021 because Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. 1 Thessalonians 1, 6-7. And this is where you need to hear how it's not just the apostles who imitated Christ and then modeled that. No, believers are called to imitate Christ and then model that for others. Paul writes, and you became imitators of us and of the Lord, for you received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and in Achaia. Brothers and sisters, let me tell you this, even though I have read the scriptures and have believed the word that those changed by the grace of our generous God ought to be generous themselves, I can honestly tell you that some of the most important lessons that I have learned in this area of the Christian faith is by watching other Christians. It's by watching other mature believers practice generosity. And I was able to see how they were generous when they had little and how they were generous when they had plenty. If you're a member at Grace Church, or if you have been coming for a while, then you have certainly heard us talk a lot about Christian love and being committed to one another as members. It's in our church covenant. And it's there because it's in the Bible. It's in Luke 17, verse 3, and Colossians 3, 13, and 1 Thessalonians 5, 11, and 1 Peter 1, 22. That is the wisdom of God given to us. So how do you learn all of that through imitation? I wanted to give you a real-life example. And so I reached out to a brother who used to be a member here at Grace Church, and I asked him, Hey, brother, would you mind sharing what you learned while you were here at Grace Church? How did you learn this at Grace? And this is how he responded. These are his words. He writes, at Grace, commitment to relationships was always taught. Grace's covenant language captures it well. We will be devoted to one another in brotherly love. With humility and gentleness, we will patiently bear with each other, forgiving, encouraging, and building one another up, exercising watchfulness over each other, and admonishing one another when necessary. And then he writes, at Grace Church, I noticed that most members did not rush in and rush out on Friday mornings or at other gatherings. Members stayed around. They lingered. They were invited. And they invited others out for lunch at the mall. And they invited others to their homes. I saw that genuine relationships were forged when members spent time with others. It could have been spent elsewhere. But devotion to one another, including bearing with one another in love, especially when people acted unlovingly and watching over one another, and exercising watchfulness, all of these things takes time and commitment. Listen carefully now. He writes, I learned this kind of brotherly love through imitation. I saw other brothers exercise hospitality, and I found a way to do the same. I noticed the types of conversations that were edifying, and I tried to emulate them. I noticed the words and attitudes expressed to others in moments of difficulty, and I took note. Watching and learning from other mature Christians in the local church is part and parcel of the Christian life. 
Brothers and sisters, I hope that is an encouragement to you to go and do the same. Elders are certainly called to be examples to the flock in every aspect of their Christian lives, but so are you. If someone is imitating Christ, then they are worthy of imitation. We see that even in this text. Paul says, imitate me, but then he asks them to look at someone else. Did you see that? Be imitators of me. Look at the text, verse 17. That is why I sent you Timothy, my beloved and faithful child in the Lord, to remind you of my ways in Christ as I teach them everywhere in every church. If anyone knew Paul's Christian ways, it was Timothy, whom Paul regarded, regarded as a spiritual son. And so Timothy was told to go to Corinth and to remind them of the way of the cross so that they could imitate his ways in Christ just as he had learned from Paul. And see, and what Paul was asking these Corinthians to do was not strange, nor was it unique. This is what he did everywhere, in every church. And beloved, this tells you that believing in the word of the cross and living according to the way of the cross by imitation is not something that is peculiar to some churches and not to others. No, this is what it means to be a Christian. This is what it means to be a disciple of Jesus in any church. Anything less is disobedience. And so let me ask you, brothers, are you living like this? Are you inviting others to observe you and be a part of your life as you grow in Christ-likeness? Sisters, are you inviting other women into your life to observe you as you grow in Christ? Brothers, are you allowing others to observe as you parent your children or see how you love your wife and care for her? Husbands, let me ask you this. Are you modeling submission for your wife? Maybe that's a strange concept for you, and no one's ever asked you or told you that. Don't you think that you should model submission by submitting to the word of Christ and submitting to the counsel of your elders? Mothers, do you know other women whom you can invite into your life to watch you exercising kindness to your children, to watch you how you deal with the hectic schedule? Younger men and younger women, is there a godly older man or an older woman that you regularly imitate? Beloved, if you are learning and growing and thriving spiritually, reach out to someone and say, why don't you come home and watch how I lead my family devotions. Watch my life. See how I prioritize things as a Christian. Watch me as I go through trials and listen to how I pray. Why don't you come along and watch me as I encourage another believer and learn how to use Scripture to minister to others. Imitate me as I imitate Christ. Brothers and sisters, this is what we are called to do. This is what it means to be a disciple. But not everyone at Corinth was thrilled about living like this. Look at the text, verse 18. Some are arrogant as though I were not coming to you. Again, it seems from the text that there were some leaders at Corinth who were so settled in their cultural ways of thinking that they disdained Paul's authority. These men might have been the ones for whom Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 3.17, if anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. They were arrogant. They were leading people astray because they thought that Paul's not going to come. And he says all these things and he writes all these letters. He's not going to come. But Paul was going to come. He tells us in 1 Corinthians 16 verse 8 that he was going to stay in Ephesus for a while because God had given him an opportunity for effective ministry there. But as someone who saw himself as a father to these Corinthians, he was not going to allow this kind of pastoral malpractice 
to go unchecked. And that brings us to our third and final point. Spiritual fathering involves calling attention to cross-centered sanctification and discipline if necessary. Look at verses 19 to 20. But I will come to you soon if the Lord wills, and I will find out not the talk of these arrogant people, but their power. For the kingdom of God does not consist in talk, but in power. Friends, the word that is translated as talk is the word logos, which means word. Paul is referring to the speech of these leaders that these Corinthians were so impressed with. And he says, I'm not interested in their talk. I want to know their power. Do they have any? He's talking about the Spirit's power. Is the Spirit at work in these men? You know, Paul is contrasting the word of the cross, which is God's power for our sanctification, with these men's word, their speech, and its effect. You know, the reason Paul determined to know nothing except the word of the cross among the Corinthians was because he wanted their faith to rest not in the wisdom of men, not in fancy speech, but in the power of God. You see that in 1 Corinthians 2 verse 5. Paul's preaching, his speech was not flowery and polished like that of the Corinthian public speakers because he trusted in the gospel and its power. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, died in the place of guilty sinners for all those who would repent of their sins and believe in Him. That message, and that message alone, has the power to not only save sinners, but to sanctify them, to transform them. The message of Jesus' death and resurrection alone has the power to save and to transform a sinful heart. Friends, God's wisdom in His Word tells us that the Spirit who raised Jesus from the dead for our justification is the one who empowers us to kill sin and to pursue the obedience of faith. And according to Paul, any attempt to deliver the message of the cross in an attractive pa package would empty it of its saving power. And here's what you need to understand. It also empties it of its sanctifying power. And that's what the, Paul wants the Corinthians to know. When he comes, he will show them that these leaders are all talk and no power. All bark and no bite. Their speech may be impressive, but they are powerless to change people's hearts. Elsewhere, Paul will say that certain people have a form of godliness, but denying its power. For the kingdom of God does not consist in talk, but in power. And what Paul means by that is when you're trusting in cultural wisdom, God won't act in power to transform you because He won't share His glory with anyone. Beloved, when Christ is reigning over the hearts of His people, when they are looking to and they are trusting in His finished work, His Spirit will sanctify us. His power will be manifest in transformed lives. And it won't be just about the presence of the Spirit's gifts. You will see transformed lives. That's the power that He's talking about. You know, a good way to evaluate your Christian lives is to see which areas of sin you have not overcome and then ask yourself, well, how have I been dealing with my sins? What have I been trusting in to overcome that sin? If you're prone to fits of rage and anger and the way that you deal with it is to stay away from people that you don't like and get some sleep, do some breathing exercises, take a walk, then congratulations, you seem to be doing fine without Jesus. No, you need to have a cross-centered approach towards change. Sanctification or growth in holiness is by faith. It is by faith in the finished work of Jesus. 
And friends, this means that you need to see your anger as sinful. You need to see your sin as God sees it. You need to see and recognize that your sinful passions are at war within you. That you are not getting what you want, and so you step into God's shoes as a judge, and you punish people by your words. And your sin is worthy of eternal condemnation. But you also need to recognize by the wisdom of God's Word that Christ died for your sin of anger, that He nailed it to the cross and He rose from the dead to give you a new heart that desires to commit all judgment to Him. A new heart that desires to forgive others as He forgave you. When you remember and trust that message, the Spirit of the crucified and risen Jesus will cleanse your sinful, angry heart. He will help you forgive. He will empower you to be self-controlled and forgiving and patient and kind. When you trust in the message of the cross, the Spirit who raised Jesus from the dead with immeasurable power will work in your hearts to overcome sin and pursue righteousness. This is how one author put it. The kingdom that has already been inaugurated by the resurrection of Jesus and the coming of the Spirit is characterized by the power of the Spirit. He's talking about the sanctifying power of the Spirit to change lives because you're trusting in the wisdom of the cross, not in the wisdom of the world, not in the wisdom of culture. And friend, if you're not a Christian and you're listening to this and you agree with God's assessment of your state, if you agree that you have sinned against His eternal goodness and kindness, that you deserve His just judgment, then I have good news for you. You can be forgiven of your sins. You can know this saving power that I've been talking about. You can personally experience this life-changing power if you repent of your sins and put your trust in the saving death of Jesus Christ. There is hope for you, living hope, and His name is Jesus. Put your trust in Him. The kingdom of God does not consist in talk, but in power. And that's what is at stake here for the Corinthians. And this is why cultural thinking is so deadly. It's so deadly. It will give you social acceptance, but it's powerless to change you. And this is why, dear friends, listen carefully, this is why you should not be surprised that in a church where cultural thinking is the norm, sin is tolerated and not confronted. And that's what was going on at Corinth. There's no power to overcome sin. Well, what do you do with it? Well, you justify it, don't you? You tolerate it. Anger, jealousy, strife, selfish ambition. This is who we are as a culture. Sin was being tolerated at Corinth. We'll look at that in chapter 5. And friends, when this sort of thing happens and people don't repent and change, loving, fatherly, pastoral care must include church discipline. So Paul gives them another warning to change or else he would come in his apostolic authority to administer discipline. Look at verse 21. What do you wish? Shall I come to you with a rod, meaning with an intent to discipline, or with love in a spirit of gentleness? You see, Paul's loving purpose for the Corinthians is that they would repent and change. And so, when it contrasts the rod and love in a spirit of gentleness, you shouldn't think that discipline is unloving as opposed to love and gentleness. No, Paul's motives are clear in this text. And this is how I think you should read this text. Paul is stating how the Corinthians would perceive his visit. You know, what clues us off is his question. What do you want? What do you wish? What do you prefer? 
a visit where discipline is on the agenda or a visit that would seem to you as loving and gentle. You know, we will learn next week that church discipline is not for disordered thinking but for disordered behavior and that too for unrepentant and ongoing sin. But as we'll see next week, things were really bad at Corinth and it needed immediate attention. And that is why Paul writes this letter. Brothers and sisters, what we have here are the words of the Spirit of Jesus calling us to not go beyond what is written, calling us to put our faith, our trust in the full and finished sacrifice of Jesus so that we might be cleansed of our sins, that we might know His sanctifying power, that we might know victory over our sins, that we might be transformed into His likeness. Beloved, this is the way of the cross. And it is the only way to view our lives and live our lives. So let me ask you, is your faith resting in the wisdom of men or in the power of God? Let's pray. Father, we confess that we don't think carefully enough about our sanctification because we think we need to move away from the gospel and go on to higher things. Forgive us, O Lord. Cause your people to be humbled by the cross and cling to it. Help us see that without the cross we won't be able to see our sin. And without without the cross... We won't be able to see the glory of our Savior. Help us to see that every day. Lord, we desire to see a revival of truth and transformation in this congregation. Oh Lord, exalt your word above everything else so that we might be filled with your spirit and be eager to disciple and be discipled for the glory of your name. And Lord, in all these things we confess that we are weak, but you are strong. Keep our eyes fixed on Jesus. Build your church, O Lord, for we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.